Well, I believe that all great stories have great endings. Have you ever read a book or watched a TV show or a movie that had a terrible ending? Anybody ever watched the TV show Lost? Great beginning, terrible ending. Now, some of you watch Lost and you like the ending. I think you're kind of crazy and we can, we can debate about that later. But it was a terrible ending. I mean, some stories just have really bad endings. They're incomplete. They might leave several plot lines unresolved or things don't make sense. Things don't add up. Um, some endings are just really tragic and it's not really fun to sit in. Um, and so some, and sometimes we just don't get the ending that we long for. We don't get that happy ending that we were hoping that the story would have. You know, I think we all long for stories where in the end, good wins over evil and we live happily ever after, right? And I believe that the world itself, for all, however long history has been going on, the world itself is a living story. It's a living story that's being played out on the stage of history. And I want to ask, what ending will the story of the world have? Will it be a good ending? Will it resolve all the multiple plot lines that have been going on? Will it be happily ever after for humanity? And today we're concluding our sermon series called The Return, Our World's Greatest Hope. And, I, and I, we're asking the question, what will the end of the story be? for our world. But before we dive in, I really feel compelled to give a lot of credit to uh, N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. Uh, this has uh, influence uh, in all of my thinking, but especially on this sermon. So I want to give credit. I'll be quoting from Wright a few times, but I, I highly recommend this book to any Christian wanting to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. It's an awesome, awesome book. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorites, and uh, so I recommend that to you. Now, back to the ending. What, what kind of ending will this world have? Now, people throughout history have given different answers to what they think the ending of this world will be like. And I want to go over a few with you. Uh, one answer that people give, maybe surprisingly, is that there'll be no ending. Uh, some kind of philosophies and even religions just think the world will just keep cycling through and history will repeat itself or you might be reincarnated or something like that and, and history just keeps going on and on. And that's, to me, that's really not a great ending because it doesn't resolve any of the evil and injustices that have happened. It doesn't resolve any of the storylines. So I think we need a better ending. Another ending that people uh, will say is that the world is just going to crash and burn. Uh, sometimes modern science is pointing to this, that uh, the world's going to run out of energy. The sun might run out of energy. Uh, humans might destroy the planet because of pollution and global warming, and the snow uh, caps might melt and the world's going to be destroyed. So some people think the world's just going to, boom, crash and burn, and it'll be done. Um, and in the same vein as the no ending option, this really doesn't resolve any of the things that have happened in our world. It's just, it's just a, to me, a bad ending. Um, another option that people give uh, is they think the world's just going to progress to a state of utopia. Um, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this one because this, this one has, uh, has a pretty big foothold in our world in the, in the way that people think. Um, and really the, the essential idea is that human beings, through knowledge, education, science, technology, whatever, uh, what have you, that we can progress over time, we can evolve over time to the point where we reach a state of utopia. Um, and this idea became very popular in Europe in the 19th century. And I think you can maybe see why. Technology had been rapidly increasing. Scientific knowledge had been rapidly increasing. Uh, democracy was a big improvement on the monarchy. And uh, the economy was growing. 
And so people in the West, people in Europe and America, they thought, well, if we can just spread these ideas to the rest of the unenlightened world, uh, the world's going to reach peace and we're, we're going to establish utopia. It's going to be great. And I like to think of this idea as humans trying to build the Tower of Babel. If we can just build it up enough, we'll eventually reach heaven, right? Um, but the problem is human beings cannot build utopia, at least apart from God. We can't do it on our own. And I think there, there were many things that should have killed this idea a long time ago because all of the progress that people were talking about in the 19th and 20th century, uh, not only did they produce all of the advances we've seen, they also have produced uh, two world wars, the atomic bomb, a nuclear arms race, new drugs in the war on drugs, mass incarceration, the Holocaust, widespread pornography use, pollution, global warming, and more. I mean, unless you have a very narrow view of the world and world history, you cannot say it's been a straight line of advance and progress in the world. You see, every advance in society has produced more opportunity and occasion for sin and evil and injustice in this world. And some that have been the biggest degree that we have ever seen or witnessed in history. So the problem with this ending is history has no moral compass. And it has no power to overcome the evil that's in human hearts. And it cannot address the injustices of the past if things were to hypothetically get be better and better. So therefore, this ending will not work. It won't be a good ending to resolve all the things that have happened. One more idea that people often have is this idea of souls escaping the world. Now, some ancient philosophies like Platonism and religions like Buddhism kind of have this idea uh, that the material world is bad and evil and it's full of suffering, and we need to escape this world to go to a spiritual, a spiritual world. And actually, many Christians believe something uh, very similar to this, uh, but the problem is it's not biblical. It's not right. See, many Christians believe that the end of the story of the world is going to heaven when you die, that it's escaping this world to go on to a heavenly world. Uh, the problem is the end, of the, the end of the story is not about uh, life after death in heaven. And see, this ending also leaves many plot lines unresolved. But more importantly, it's not the end of the story that God has revealed to us in the Bible. So you want to, so we've gone over these four, so we want to ask, well, what is the end of the story that God is writing? And if I could put it to you like this, I would say the end of the story is that when Jesus returns, God will radically heal the entire world. He will give resurrected life to his children and he will restore full relational harmony between God, between humankind, and all creation. And every wrong will be righted, evil will be defeated, and we will live with God in the new heavens and the new earth, happily ever after. That's going to be the ending that this world has. There's a lot there, and I want to unpack it with you this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. And I have to say, this section of Scripture does not give— uh, the church does not give it enough importance. This is the picture of where God is taking the world. We need to give it more importance in the church. So let's unpack uh, what this verse says. Um, and I want to begin in verse 18. Uh, and this passage begins by Paul says, I consider 
that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Now, in Paul's Jewish biblical mind, uh, time has two ages. The present age of suffering and the age to come when God restores the whole world. And Paul says, I consider, and he, he's been meditating on the differences between what these two ages will be like. And he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to come. In other words, the suffering that the world experiences in this present age, it cannot be even compared with the glory that will be revealed in the age to come when Jesus returns. It's kind of like Paul is saying, if on one side of a scale, you put all the sufferings that have ever happened in this world, you put it on one side of the scale, and you put on the other side of the scale, the glory that's going to be revealed in the age to come, it's not even worth comparing. The weight of the glory is going to break the scale. It's not even going to be close. I mean, this is incredible. And frankly, it can be hard to believe. I mean, the world has ex experienced intense suffering, right? I mean, Dan Dobler talked about this at our Sunday evening service this past Sunday. The suffering that we go through in this life and how Jesus is our model and our vision. It was an excellent word uh, that he gave to us. So is Paul just ignorant? Is he just making light of the suffering that we deal with? I say absolutely not. Paul knew suffering deeply. And I want to, I want to quote, uh, uh, quote a passage to you from 2 Corinthians 11, and where Paul talks about many of the things that he experienced. He said, I had been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers and bandits, from my fellow Jews, from the Gentiles. I've been in danger in the city, in the country, and at sea, and from false believers. I have labored and toiled. I have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And I daily face the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's what Paul's life was like in Jesus Christ. And he says, add all that up. All the suffering that I've personally experienced, add it all up, and it won't even compare. It won't even compare with the glory that's going to be revealed when Jesus comes. Wow. Can you imagine saying that? I mean, only a person with a tremendous faith-filled imagination for the end of the story that God has promised can say such a thing. And I want to help you today to, be, to become more like the Apostle Paul in this matter, to help fill your imagination for what God has promised the end of the story is going to be like. So, Let's dive into the end of the story now. I want to give you three points to help you consider why the Apostle Paul could even say such a radical thing. Number one is this. God will radically heal the entire world. At the end of the story, God will radically heal 
the entire world. Romans 8 says this, uh, in verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So to understand why the end of the story is going to be so glorious, you have to go back to the beginning of the story. See, God created this world, this wonderful world that we live in, and he called it very good. God loves the world. Not just human beings, he, loved, he loves this whole world that he made. And he created us humans in it to reflect his image and extend his glory, his, his rule, and his dominion to all parts of creation. And we were meant to rule over the nature and all of the animal kingdom. I mean, it was an amazing task that he gave us. But when our ancestors ate the fruit, they rebelled against our creator. And as you know, sin entered the world, and, and God, in his wisdom and his justice, he cursed this world. So it would no longer be utopia. It would no longer be paradise for us to live in. It's, there's still good, many good things about this world, but many, many, much of it is cursed and broken. That's why Paul says creation was subject to frustration. But because of that, all creation waits in eager expectation. In other, in other words, Paul is saying all creation is standing on its tiptoes. It is, it is waiting. It is eager to see what God is going to do when Jesus comes again. Creation itself is eager for its redemption from its slavery to the, to the decay and death of this world. You see, so the story of God, of God's good world, cannot be abandonment of God's world. It cannot be that. At the end of the story, God's not scrapping this world that he made so that we can go to heaven. No, he's going to radically heal this created world for us to live in once again with him in paradise. So in there, there in this world, there will be no more death or destruction or decay in all of the created world. I think it's good for us to exercise our imaginations about this, a, a world that where there's no more natural disasters. There's no more uh, droughts or earthquakes or hurricanes or famines or other ravaging fires or places without clean water. There's no more things like that in this new world. And we, and we can even imagine what will it be like when plants and vegetables and fruits are perfected in every way. What will, that, what will they taste like? What will it be like? What will it, what will it be like when our relationship to animals is restored? You see, we, we were meant to live in harmony with the animals and, and exercise God's lordship over the animal kingdom. And Isaiah gives a vision from my, uh, out of Isaiah 11 about God's new world. And it's amazing the things that he includes. And he says, the, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. Imagine that. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah gives a vision of the world that's known as the peaceable kingdom. And when, when we will live in peace and harmony with all of creation, including the animals, the animals that we were meant to care for and rule over. And see, right now, we don't live in harmony with the animals. Uh, they attack humans and kill them. We attack them and kill them. We are not in harmony or reconciled to the animals. But no more in God's new world. He will heal all of our relationship to creation, including with the animals. And in one of his sermons, John Wesley, he amazingly even begins to wonder and imagine. He says, what if, what if when God renews the world and when he makes us equal to the angels, what if he makes animals equal to what we are now in this world? And, uh, creatures capable of knowing and communicating and knowing their creator and, and loving him. I mean, I mean, just what if? I mean, we're getting into the world of imagination. But that's a good thing for us because the new world will be more wonderful than you can ever fathom, than you could ever imagine, than you could ever dream of. When God restores the natural world, it's gonna be even better than it was when God first created the world in Eden. It's going to be incredible. So God is gonna heal the entire world. And we, then we have to ask, well, how is that healing gonna take place? That brings me to number two. Number two, at the, end of the, at the end of the story, God will defeat evil, judge evil, and purge evil from the world. He will defeat evil, he will judge evil, and he will purge evil from the world. I mean, this is how every great story ends, right? I mean, Harry Potter defeats Voldemort and restores peace. Aslan defeats the Wicked Witch. Sauron is, is, is defeated in, in the Lord of the Rings. In Star Wars, the light overcomes the darkness. The Avengers save the universe. I mean, we could go on and on and on with examples, right? I mean, have you ever wondered why human beings instinctively create stories like this? I believe it's because God created us with that desire. A desire to see evil be overcome in this world, in the story of the world. And I believe the living story is going to end this way, with God overcoming all evil in the world. He will be victorious over all the evil powers that have been at work destroying God's good world. I mean, the Bible in Revelation, it, it says Satan and his, and his demons, his minions, they will finally be defeated. It pictures Satan being thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And he will be locked up. He will, be able, he will not be able to harm creation anymore. God's enemy will be defeated in the end. And not only that, but all who have proven to be on the dark side rather than the light will be judged appropriately and righteously, and they won't be allowed to tarnish God's new world at all. Now, I've spoken to you a few times in the series about Jesus' role when he returns to judge the living and the dead. You know, Jesus warned about Judgment Day more than anybody else. I mean, he was constantly warning us about this day. Why? Because evil and wickedness will be purified from God's new world. He won't allow it to affect the new world at all. It's not going to be Eden and then a fall again. No, it's going to be a new world forever and ever. And so I believe that's why the Bible talks about judgment and how there's, there's the fire of judgment that's coming. And we mentioned this last week, but I want to go back to it in 2 Peter 3, 7. It says this, The present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, 
being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now notice the fire is not for the world. It's for the destruction of the ungodly. But let's continue in verses 11 and 12. The picture that the apostle Peter gives us who knew Jesus well. He says, That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The end of the story is a new heaven and a new earth. You see, like the flood, God is going to cleanse the world with a judgment by fire. Now, as most of you know me, I've spent a lot of time in the national parks, and they tell you, when you go there, they tell you a lot, of, a lot about the fires that have happened in these majestic places. And when a fire rages a forest, we often think how horrible, and we think it's, it's destruction only. But actually, the opposite is the case. Forest fires are often good for the forest. You see, what they do when a fire goes through a forest, it burns the dead and decaying matter. Uh, it burns dead trees. It thins out the forest. It gets all that stuff off the ground. It clears the brush away. And actually, it restores nutrients to the soil. And so what it does is, when the, after the fire has gone, it makes space for new life to emerge up from the ground. New growth, new life, new trees emerge after the fire has purged the forest. This is what judgment's going to do for this world. All the evil and brokenness and sinfulness and injustice of this world will be cleansed and purged by God on judgment day. It will purify this world. And those who are, who are unrepentant, who refuse to come into God's new world, who refuse the way of, of the light and the way of good, they will be judged and destroyed. They will not be allowed to harm God's new world in the future. So then God says the new heavens and the new earth will emerge out of this judgment. And, P and whereas Peter says, righteousness alone shall dwell in the new world. And so the world is going to be radically healed through Jesus' judgment. And that's how the new heavens and new earth come. But we ask, okay, so God uh, purges the world. He defeats evil. He's victorious over all evil powers. It's the good end of the story. The light's going to win. Then we ask, well, what's going to happen after that? What's, what, for what purpose? Well, that's why we need point number three. God will give his children resurrected life. God will give his children resurrected life. Paul goes on to say in verse 23 in Romans 8, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our, our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul is saying, not only will the entire world, all creation be restored, but we ourselves, our whole bodies and being will be redeemed and restored. So for those who are in Christ, what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago will also happen to us. Our bodies will be resurrected and transformed into a spiritual body because Christ will impart his resurrected life to his body. And I mean, this makes sense in the story, right? I mean, why would we, uh, why would we need resurrection if we were just souls escaping this world to go to a spiritual world? The resurrection wouldn't make any sense. 
No, it's the, the story is we need resurrected bodies because it's not about just going to heaven when you die. The end of the story is God's healing this whole world so that God's people can be resurrected to live in it. That's where God's taking the world. And just as the natural world is going to be vastly different from the world we experience now, our physical life will be vastly different from how we experience it now as well. And it's good for us to imagine this, to imagine bodies that don't grow old and weak, bodies that have no more pain or sickness or deadly diseases, bodies that will exceed any strength and health it ever had in this life. All of our physical and mental and emotional faculties will be heightened in every way. Friends, we need this. Because we, need, we will need th these resurrected bodies because we're not just going to be hanging around in the clouds. No, we're going to have things to do in this new heavens and new earth that we can begin to imagine now. And I like some of the things that N.T. Wright talks about. He says, The redeemed people of God in the new world will be the agent, agents of his love going out in new ways to accomplish new creative tasks, to celebrate and extend the glory of his love. All the skills and talents we have put to God's service in this present life. And perhaps too, the interests and th the likings we gave up because they conflicted with our vocation. These will be enhanced and ennobled and given back to us to be exercised to his glory. We will have things to do you know, the Bible talks about in the new heavens and the new earth, we will reign with God forever and ever. And the reigning cannot be an empty word. It can't mean nothing. It means something. It means we will have things to do that will give meaning and purpose beyond what we can imagine right now. So friends, the end of the story is that when Jesus returns, God is going to radically heal the entire world. He will give resurrected life to his children and he's going to restore the full relational harmony between us and him and all of creation. And every wrong, every wrong, every plot line where there's been injustice, that's going to be resolved. Evil will be defeated forever, and we will live with God in the new heavens and the new earth, happily ever after. So some of you might be asking, well, well so what about going to heaven when we die? What about that? Well, the Bible does teach that when Christians do die, uh, we, uh, before Jesus returns, that we go to be personally present with Jesus. You know, Paul says to be away from the body is to, is to be with the Lord. And we can call that heaven. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. It's only a temporary stop until Jesus comes again to redeem and restore the whole world. Because that is what all creation is longing for the redemption of the whole universe. That's where we're going. So this morning, how can we respond to this wonderful good news and this wonderful hope that we have? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple ways. Number, number one, because of where the story is going, we do kingdom work that will last. We do kingdom work that will last. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the hope of the resurrection, uh, he doesn't end that, wonderful chapter by saying, well, just keep on hoping and do nothing. No, he says this, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Friends, somehow, 
what we do in this life will find fulfillment in the age to come. Every act of service, every dollar donated, every cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus, everything that we do, the kingdom work that we do for God, it will find fulfillment in the age to come. You know, there's a, there's a great quote that is only attributed to Martin Luther. And he says that if I believed that the world were to end tomorrow, I would still plant a tree today. See, because there's something, there's, there's carryover from this life into the next. Because God's not scrapping this world, he's going to redeem it and heal it. So what you do with your life matters. Every day you wake up has eternal significance. Live with that hope. Live with the hope that you're living in a story that matters. Your life matters because God's redeeming the world. So we, we need to devote ourselves to kingdom work that will last. And number two, we wait in hope eagerly and patiently. We wait in hope eagerly and patiently. Now, keeping those two together is key. And actually, Paul says this in the passage. If you look in your Bibles in Romans 8, Paul says we wait both eagerly and we also wait patiently. This is a good balance because we're not going to wait for the end uh, not so eagerly that we're no longer patient. And we're not going to wait so patiently that we're no longer eager and excited about his coming. We're going to be both patient and eager because the hope of the end of the story is so good. We can wait in eagerness and with patience for God to bring about, bring about the end in his own timing that he chooses. Friends, this is going to be the most magnificent end to a story that you could ever hope for. It will be better than any, any, any ending that you've ever read or watched. It is going to be better. And to close, I, I think nobody has put this better in writing than C.S. Lewis and how he, how he ended the series, The Chronicles of Narnia. It's a Christian allegory. And uh, Aslan, the Christ figure, is, is depicted as a lion. And in the very end of the series, it says this. It says, as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot begin to write them. And for us, this, the end of all the stories. And we can most fully say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was, the only, the, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before.